Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 128 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. Today, I had the honor and pleasure of having a conversation with Dr. Keita Franklin, the National Director of Suicide Prevention for the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention. Dr. Franklin and her team are not focused just on intervening when a veteran is considering taking their own life, but on putting measures in place to prevent veteran suicide. We talk about the need for education and advocacy in both the provider community and the communities at large. It just speaks to how complex this issue is and how we need to provide ongoing training for our own field, but equally so get others comfortable as asking the question, are you thinking of ending your life? And understanding what to do if someone says yes, like you must take action, don't leave them alone, get them to help. This is a, a critical time. And I think as a nation, if we got to a place where we were able to make a further dent around stigma reduction and get people more comfortable talking about suicide risk in a way that's helpful, and I think that we could, we could make a change with that little step as well. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. Uh, you know, when we talk about veteran mental health, uh, unfortunately and inevitably, the conversation comes to eventually veteran suicide. We all know the veteran suicide epidemic. Um, the numbers have been static um, over the last several years, even even approaching a decade now. Uh, and I'm really honored and appreciative to be able to bring on uh, Dr. Keita Franklin, who is the National Director of Suicide Prevention for the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, so in the VA, Dr. Franklin is the person who's, who's speaking about um, suicide prevention. So uh, Keita, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, again, I really appreciate you taking your time, realizing how busy it is, but also recognizing that any of these conversations that you're having um, 
as many conversations we can have about suicide prevention uh, is beneficial. Uh, but I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and sort of how you came to to this particular um, line of work. Sure, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And I am a social worker by training. I, um, I actually my my father was active duty in the United States Navy, and I grew up on Navy bases around the world, and um, largely in New England, and towards his latter years. But um, I grew up in the military culture and have had a keen interest in understanding um, the stressors that are placed on military families early on in my career, and so. I have a master's degree in social work and a PhD in social work where I've been, I was fortunate to study during the middle of the war effort, um, the impact of post-traumatic stress disorder on family relationships and even parent-child relationships. And so that sort of focused my career around trauma and PTSD. And um, from there, then I became even more interested in suicide and suicide prevention. And, and I spent most of my time working with the active duty side across various branches of the military and at the headquarters level with the Marine Corps before spending some time in the Pentagon. And now I'm on a mission here over in the Department of Veteran Affairs, um, working, um, as you said, with, with veteran suicide issues and, and trying to move the needle on this important, this important issue. You know, I, I always appreciate how, um, how clinicians come to working with veteran mental health specifically. And like you said, it usually is a family connection, um, uh, you know, spouse or child or even service member themselves. Uh, and like you, uh, my father um, is a veteran or was a veteran. He, he passed away um, from natural causes several years ago. Oh. But for a long time, this was um, the, the suicide. He was a Vietnam veteran. And, and actually, I've, I've mentioned to it on the show, when I was on active duty, the first suicide intervention I ever conducted was with my father, which was really set me down this path wow. of working um, with veterans in mental health, but also recognizing um i as a combat veteran uh, and and this is obviously probably not something that you haven't heard before but i've lost more of my soldiers or people that i deployed with to suicide than we actually did during combat and and that's a significant issue and that's something that a lot of veterans are experiencing is um, losing more of their battle buddies to suicide after deployments Yes, it is. And I appreciate you bringing it up because um, I've, I've read that myself as well. And, and I think that people sometimes think it's uh, one simple reason, one simple um, risk factor, we would say in mental health on uh, that brings somebody to the point where, where they, where they die by suicide. And, and what we know is that it's multiple reasons. And sometimes it's upwards of 20 reasons all interacting together in the absence of, you know, feeling overwhelmed and, and in the absence of protective factors, um, it can result in, in a death by suicide. And so it is so complex. And sometimes it's difficult to compare one versus the other. But when we see those statistics that show that, you know, more people have died, more veterans or service members have died by, by suicide than by wartime injuries, it is, it is startling. And it does, you know, send us to a place, I think, of, of a call to action around the issue for sure. Right. And, and I, I definitely, that's what I've started to hear, of course, in the research showing that the, the paths, um, that, that veterans take to that. It's, it's very challenging because it's, it's almost, um, I don't want to say it's unknowable. We know what the risk factors are. Um, but it can be very challenging to say that, 
um, you can have all the risk factors and still never go to the point of, of taking your own life. Um, I, before we maybe get into that technical things, I, I'd like to maybe give you an opportunity to give an overview of um, sort of the VA suicide prevention program in your office and, and sort of what, what you do now. Sure, absolutely. The program was set up, I, I want to say, close to 12 years ago, um, largely focused on a crisis intervention capability, our veteran crisis line, and putting suicide prevention coordinators at every VA medical facility in the nation. And and I think that was largely also where where the science was at the time. Was, um, the, the thoughts around suicide prevention were we definitely need a crisis capability and we need strong mental health providers. And if we have those two things, we can make a difference and we can identify people at risk and we can do something about it by bringing them into our hospital system and treating them. And so the VA's model was stood up by uh, Dr. Jan Kemp. I would be remiss in not mentioning her. She was the founding, one of the founding members or the founding um, leader in this space uh, well before my time. And was such a big champion of suicide prevention, but the program has evolved over the years and we've added new and additional capabilities. And we're pivoting here of recent in the last year and a half, even more so on this trajectory that the VA has been on towards a public health approach. And so we're trying to think through and to execute programming for all 20 million veterans. And I say that because it's important because not all of those 20 million veterans receive their health care in our VHA, our Veteran um, Health Administration healthcare hospital-based system. So, you know, um, I said 20 million. It's 19.9 billion million, and almost 2 million of those are women. But we are designing our programming towards all of them. And then we are trying to better understand the pockets of individuals that are at risk at the group level. And we're we're working on additional interventions that I can talk to you about for those. And then trying to continue our good work for those that are at the individual level. And those are the ones that usually are coming to us through our veteran crisis work or um, indirect engagements with our hospital system, with our suicide prevention coordinators, and also through a capability that you may have heard of called ReachVet. I, I can talk to you more about that, but that's a bit of a predictive analytic tool that we use to further identify risk in our veterans that are seeking healthcare in our hospital system. So all of that to say that the program is really focused broad and far on interventions across the spectrum of everybody, um, writ large individuals that are at risk at the group level, and then singular individuals as well. If, does that make sense? Yes, it absolutely does. And um, as I'd mentioned before we started talking, me as a, a community mental health provider that works closely with the VA um, have seen all of these things and, and definitely appreciate um, that uh, it's not just for VA vets, right? You know, the, the, as you said, the yeah. veterans in the VA healthcare system. Um, I, as a retiree, I get most of my healthcare through, I'm, I'm right outside of Fort Carson, right? So I, I get it through my, um, you know, my on-post provider. Um, you know, you, you of course have veterans that may not be eligible for the VA one way or another. They don't have service connected and they have an income that's higher. Um, and so, and this is really a misnomer uh, or a misconception a lot of people have is that all veterans should be able to go in the VA. Um, and, and that 19 million, I mean, there's, there's no way that one organization can support all that. So I really appreciate the idea of, um, reaching more of those and not just the, 
the veterans, but the clinicians themselves. So starting with that, um, with the public health approach, um, and again, as, as we were talking briefly before, um, this is something that we as a community here in Colorado and, and definitely with the support of the, uh, the VA have, has started to look more at. Um, I'd like to hear more about the, what, what you and your office are considering these public health approaches, uh, to addressing the veteran suicide epidemic. Yes. Thank you. One thing I should have said that, that I think gets up to after the heart of this and it builds on something that you said about uh, also about veterans having health care through our VHA system or not. When 20 veterans a day die by suicide, um, six of those have touched our VA healthcare system in the days and months leading up to their death, and 14 have not. And so that data point, while a singular data point, um, is, is important because if 14 have not touched our healthcare system, it really is a sign for us that we've got to push our, our interventions outside the four walls of our hospital-based system. And so some of the ways that we're trying to do that is um, to work with our suicide prevention coordinators to have them join local coalitions, and coalitions with counties and towns and mayors and, and, and states, and work collaboratively with suicide experts that are outside of the VA system to design interventions where the way that we're talking about it is where veterans work, live, and thrive, so that we're not just capturing them when they, where they get health care. Certainly where they get health care is important and we won't stop that work, but also engaging with them where they work, live, and thrive in, a, in such a matter through these coalitions where we believe that there's no wrong door for care. And so um, if they want to get care through their, uh, their own insurance, we want to help make that happen. If they want to get care through a peer support model or, or through complementary therapies, um, Really, we want it to be unique to the veteran, and it doesn't have to be in our in our system. Although we do know that when veterans come to VHA, they do receive better care than than they would outside of that system, and you know that was documented in a recent National Academies of Science report. But we just don't want barriers or um, feelings about the VA to in any way hinder somebody coming into care. But beyond coalitions, we're also encouraging all of our suicide prevention coordinators and here at the national office as well to develop partnerships. Now, we have over 68 partnerships right now with various veteran service organizations and um, nonprofit organizations that are helping us. And each partner comes to the table with a different willingness and desire to do this work. And But the important part of the partnerships is using their organization's strengths to further multiply our efforts. Um, so I, I give you an example. We're partnering with an organization called Give an Hour, and they they provide um, maybe you've heard of them free therapy out in communities, and um, they also have a a stigma reduction campaign, which is really focused on knowing the signs of mental health distress and knowing what to do when you're around somebody who's annoyed or agitated or irritated or angry. And uh, as some examples, and so that's one partner, but we have a host of others that we're engaging with. I, um, I should also tell you about our, our partnership with the Independence Fund. And this is a nonprofit veteran service organization that we've only recently started partnering with around, uh, although I think it's an important intervention, we're pulling together units that have been through a lot of combat exposure and or trauma and reconstituting those units and providing some psychoeducational prevention content to the units, but um, the content is critically important. But even more so is the 
ability of these service members, these veterans to reconnect, to have rebuild those social connections and those bonds that, that they experienced while they were um, serving together. And we're in the, in the early stages of that. We've done one reunion with them and we have another one coming up, but it's, it is a pilot program, but I just want you to know more broadly, the importance of partnerships as our strategy. When we, when we see SPCs working on coalitions and building partnerships, to help do this work. And then when we work with them on training, what we call, you've probably heard of the term gatekeepers. Really, this is like training everybody who, who touches the lives of a veteran, whether that's the front desk worker in our hospital system, or whether that's the person that hands out towels at the gym, or whether that's the librarian who interacts with them on a computer in the local library. We want to train all gatekeepers on signs and symptoms of, of suicide risk and we have a capability online called SAVE, S-A-V-E, and that's our, our, our training. It's, it's a 28-minute training, but it's very impactful and teaches people how to ask the question, are you thinking of ending your life by suicide, and then teaches them what to do about it, more importantly. So these are just a few examples of uh, some ways that we're trying to expand our programming into the public health space. Right. And, and I appreciate that. Uh, and, and when I talk to people about, you know, public health and, and, you know, veteran suicide, and sometimes, of course, there's the blank stare. But if we look at the public health approach of, you know, a smoking cessation, right? You know, it's not just the, the, the oncologists that are the ones that are trying to address smoking because it causes cancer. Um, or, or, um, you know, um, drugged or alcohol driving, right? So these are, these are public health risks. Um, and, and there's a number of them and suicide is one of them. And, and taking an approach of saying it's not just the clinician's, um, uh, responsibility. Um, you and I know we clinicians are less likely to come in contact with someone who is experiencing an, a suicidal crisis, um, than say their local clergy or a police officer or those gatekeepers that you're talking about. And so I really appreciate that idea of pushing what we know as mental health professionals that works and putting in the hands of the community so that the community can wrap their hands around this. And it's not just the responsibility of these strengths in their office. Yes, exactly. I think it is so important, which is why we're really focusing on this push towards engaging with veterans where they work, live, and thrive. And maybe you've heard of our campaign called Be There, which is also really focused on community efforts like Be There for Veterans. And we're trying to build it out in this coming year to talk more strategically on how people can, quote unquote, be there, whether that's everyday small acts of kindness, like taking a veteran out for a cup of coffee or asking a veteran about their service or even attending a medical appointment and helping them get transportation um, to an appointment. I mean, there's lots of ways we can be there for our nation's veterans, but you remind me also about the role of peer support. I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that, but um, I'm happy to talk to you more about just how unique peer support plays out in our military and veteran population. Right. I, I am. And in many ways, you know, I retired uh, after 22 years and I went on to uh, to get a, a clinical degree. So in some ways, I am a super peer um, as far as those of us who have <laughs> yes. li lived experience. Um, and, and I absolutely do recognize the, the place um, of peer support. Um, I have several of my colleagues at our local VAC BAC are uh, peer support specialists, great assets to to maybe those clinicians who don't have that lived experience. Um, and, and I've I've 
had a couple of episodes on peer support before. We have to be very careful oh, about peer support, though, because um, just saying I'm a veteran and I want to help other veterans, um, we can do more damage than help if we're not properly trained as peers and know how far how far our expertise goes and when to pass it off to somebody else. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. That is critically important. And we're not trying to overwhelm peers or put put them in the role of a mini clinician or, or anything like that. It is it is a fine line. And I think that it, it can be very helpful as um, like adjunct care or um, helping people who are struggling with, with some symptoms. But um, if somebody's at high risk and, and really thinking of ending their life and has a plan and all that goes with that, we want them to immediately be passed off to our veteran crisis line or brought directly into the emergency room or, you know, call 911. Any any of those are the first go-to. I wouldn't send someone, you know, also very high risk for just peer support alone. But I think when we can get peer support early, like upstream, and, and it's part of everyday life in such a way that the veterans don't feel isolated and don't feel like feel like they have someone to talk to so that they're not a burden and that they fit in in their group. And that group might be like a veteran affinity group, or it might be like a, a group that brings them meaning or purpose. That's when we, we know we're doing good work, I think. No, I, I absolutely agree. And, and the idea of, of peers, it doesn't even necessarily have to be um, other veterans, right? If veteranism or a, a colleague of mine who works with student veterans as a clinician um, says that often at some point, the veterans that he worked with will transition from hanging out with all veterans to hanging out with other econ majors or hanging out with other, you right. know, um, business majors, right? And so whatever that peer group is, knowing that there is that veteranness, but it's this um, being able to enable. And, and, and this is one thing that I've, um, I've kind of conceptualized and, and you can confirm this if, if you believe it to be true as well. Veterans are used to helping other veterans, right? Because we, my shield covers my brother and my sister. And so by engaging veterans in peer support for other veterans, um, that's even a protective factor for their own risk to suicide. Yes, I think so. When and and they get meaning out of that and helping others. So I I think you're you're right. And and I also appreciate you um, bringing that up because the piece on where they can transition from working with econ majors, for example, because I think that is, you know, longer term goal is to help veterans feel like they they fit in in their environment, whatever that environment is. And it for some, you know, transitioning and socializing more broadly over time is is very normal and appropriate. Um, you know, we're also trying to think through the role of family members in this equation. And uh, we know that family members sometimes are the key people that see the risks first. So we're trying to um, leverage our outreach strategy also to family members like moms and dads and spouses. And so peers, certainly important, but family members are kind of in that same equation too. Yeah, absolutely. You, you had mentioned uh, earlier, I think, um, the National Academy study, which is, I think, now January of 18, probably when it came out. We actually had uh, Dr. Kara Query on the show. And in one of those studies, or, or in that study, it showed that veterans are more likely to access mental health care that they need if they have a supportive family environment. I, I think it was something to the magnitude of 50% more likely to engage and find success in treatment if they're family members, and I think it's specifically said family members. Um, and, and so you're, you're talking about 
we haven't talked about the word PTSD or the acronym PTSD in this whole thing. You're talking about these other ancillary. It's not even mental health. It's connecting to others. It's my family. Um, it's purpose and meaning. It's how do I meet my needs after the military? It's these other things that are not necessarily, not necessarily out of the realm of mental health professionals because we do have, you know, family systems theory and existentialism and, and things like that. Um, but it's not just for mental health professionals to solve. Right. Yes. This is um, also a big part of our strategy um, going forward. Like we, we um, last year published this, um, the national strategy for preventing veteran suicide. And in that strategy, we list 14 goals and a, a number of them are focused very squarely on evidence-based practices and hospital settings and, you know, improving our predictive analytics based on healthcare data. But even more so a number are focused on building healthy communities and coalitions and we're working with key gatekeepers that are outside of the hospital system so that people's risks are dealt with very early in such a way that they're not becoming chronic and complex over time. And, and so that when they do get help, the time involved in getting help and getting on a good path is shorter and we're putting the right protective systems in place in such a way that they can get on a, a path for success easier than, for example, waiting and having, you know, situations that are so complex that need to be dealt with in inpatient settings and in, in um, complex medical environments, if you will. Right. And I think that has a, a, a larger effect of, of if we start engaging these gatekeepers, you know, again, the, the front desk people or the, um, you know, the, the waiters in the restaurant or um, bartenders would Unfortunately, yes. probably, a, you know, that's, that's a, a good, good idea. Yeah, you know, um, where, where it's not just, um, yes, the rising tide lifts all boats because, um, and you mentioned before we talked or before we started recording was that, um, the veteran suicide epidemic exists uh, in a larger epidemic. Um, you know, I, I firmly believe that if we can in some way solve, um, some of the veteran suicide challenges, we can apply that to the, the, uh, community writ large. But, um, one example, El Paso County, where Colorado Springs is in Colorado, um, we have the largest suicide rate and number, um, in, in Colorado. In 2016, veteran suicides, um, counted for 50%, um, but there were 134 non-veteran suicides. I'm not sure how many of those are military affiliated, but, but really this, it's, it's a large epidemic in the veteran population, but it's an even larger epidemic in the nation as a whole. Yes, I, I, we see the national numbers rising and we see that this, that this is a societal issue. And, um, we nationally, that's interesting what you share about El Paso County, because nationally there are 123 people who die a day by suicide and, 20 of them are, are veterans, 20 of the 123 are veterans and or active duty. And so I do agree with you. If we apply strong public health approaches and we work with upstream interventions over time, I, I think that we will make a difference and we will see a reduction in our veteran population death by suicide. And that will change the national narrative and the national rate as well. Um, I think there's probably also equally some more work to be done in the national level, specifically when you look at some of the data on the youth suicide and the, and the, the rising numbers of youth that are taking their life by suicide. As someone who has studied this, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on, on perhaps why either in the veteran 
um, suicide epidemic or the, the suicide epidemic writ large. Um, perhaps, and, and it is a very complicated question we may not have times for, but why is it going up? I know it is a complex question, and I'll tell you some of my thoughts on it or, or what I've, I've been hearing in, in some discussions with colleagues as well. It's something that we, I think, need to study more with this recent upcoming cohort of young people that are uh, advancing into their early 20s and either joining the military or not or becoming a veteran or not is our societal changes around connectedness. And so I think that down the road, there's likely to be more research to be done on young people that grew up in this current generation with iPhones attached to them and with instant access to um, their network and video gaming and using their network in that way, vice perhaps the way that you and I might have had a network when we were younger, where we went outside and we played with colleagues in the neighborhood or with friends, I'm sorry, in the, in the neighborhood and we interacted and we learned problem solving skills in a different way. I think, of course, technology is wonderful and we all appreciate it, but it, there's something to be said about isolation when you're um, playing video games or on social media or connecting with people in different ways than perhaps we've connected in the past. And what does that mean across generational cohorts over time for individuals that grew up in that environment? And have we adequately prepared them for the important role of human connection and avoiding um, overly being isolated? And, and coupled with that, I think, is when you don't have a lot of connection over time, practicing problem solving on human relationships. So we see in a lot of our veteran data relationship issues at the heart of um at at the the crux of a lot of our suicides and i shared before it's like it's upwards of 20 factors at play so don't get me wrong it's not relationships alone but just this notion of building strong connections with others and then being able to problem solve when you have complex relationship issues um i'm wondering about this current cohort coming through this current generation and how we've changed in this regard and are they prepared to handle the ups and downs of relationships and to problem solve them and to, to develop them and to connect with others when they're doing well and during times of need. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts on that might be. No, as a, as a father of an 18 and 19 year old, I, I have certain very specific thoughts and, and some of them ringing true. <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, there is in, in, and obviously this idea of, of, um, connectedness, we can be increasingly, paradoxically, we can be increasingly connected while also being increasingly isolated. Um, you know, the, the idea of, and maybe dating myself here, but the, the idea of Howard Hughes is the recluse and nobody sees him. Well, Howard Hughes can be a recluse and still be, you know, um, connected and communicating, but still be isolated. Um, that's an interesting factor. Um, and, and even to the point of, of now it's increasingly, um, easier to, basically curate your world so that you're only speaking to perhaps other veterans, right? Um, online, right? And not even communicating, not even leaving the house for days, um, but you're still talking to your buddies or I mean, so that's, it is definitely an interesting aspect that I hadn't considered. Yes, it is. I, and, and you add another layer of depth to it, this idea of curating your own circle. And then we see um, social media risks on suicide. So like what, what, you know, and I know Craig Bryant has done some of the research on this with active duty and 
looking at veteran issues as well. But I mean, people are, are putting their risks online where they're writing that they're thinking of ending their life or they're using coded language on social media posts and they're saying things like, I wish it all would end or I want the pain to go away. And you have to wonder, like, are they want the pain to go away? Or are they struggling with the pain management issue? Or are they also thinking of ending their life? So it is a hard, complex issue to get after. We're in the process now of trying to make sure that we're, you know, we're responding and training people on the fact that these risks are out there on social media and that this isn't attention seeking. This just is a 2019 issue for us. Um, and so when friends see another friend online, right, that they're th they wish it would all end and they want to go to sleep and not wake up, one of the 332 friends on that page should probably say something to them and um, make sure they have access to the veteran crisis line and make sure they know that there is hope and that, you know, there are people that care about them and that we want to do something, we want to help them. Um, so this is also just part of the changing evolution of society, I think. No, and, and I, I agree. Um, I'm, I'm just considering this idea of if if a bunch of buddies were sitting around and somebody happened to say that, um, you know, struggling with, you know, just be better if I wasn't here, this day sucks. They could actually have a conversation and go deeper and, and, and dive into that meaning. Whereas if you're on social media, it's like you shoot a bottle rocket in the air and then you retreat back in the darkness and you don't have to respond to anybody who, who wants to delve deeper into is that pain or are you just having a bad day or are we in a crisis? And, and that makes intervention. And, and we are talking about intervention, unfortunately, because we're at the point of, you know, we, we have a lot of suicides that need to be intervened daily. Um, but it makes intervention that much more difficult, especially if veterans or their friends, um, don't know how to do that. Yes. And it is amazing. I, um, not only veterans are their friends, but one of the other things you remind me of is I, um, recently was at a, a research discussion about this and somebody quoted a research study that had been done that even looked at mental health providers and their familiarity or comfortability or uh, competence level in assessing suicide risk. And I, I believe they quoted something like 70% of our own mental health population are don't re self report as being comfortable engaging with clients at risk of suicide. So it just speaks to how complex this issue is and how we need to provide ongoing training for our own field, but equally so get others comfortable, as you mentioned, like asking the question, are you thinking of ending your life and understanding what to do if someone says, yeah, it's like you must take action. Don't leave them alone. Get them to help. This is a, a critical time. And I, I think as a nation, if we got to a place where people were stigma, we were able to make a dent in the issue, further dent around stigma reduction and get people more comfortable talking about suicide risk in a way that's helpful and messages of hope by sort of glamorizing it or, um, you know, talking about it in a negative way. I, I think that we could we could make a change with that little step as well. You know, I appreciate you bringing out that um, uh, that fact about mental health providers even. And uh, I know I'm mentioning a lot of uh, uh, previous shows here, but we did have Stacey Friedenthal on the show um, who, who said that very thing. And that's one thing that she says over and over and over again is that providers need to be more comfortable um, in, in asking that question. Uh, and even before I was uh, before I left active duty, I was an applied suicide intervention skills trainer. Um, and one of the oh, things that I used to. Right. Um, and, and I'm again, familiar with I, that model. 
a great uh, gatekeeper program. Um, and, and my thing always, one of the things I always said when I was training is um, ask the group of veterans or service members actually that I was training, you know, would you do anything to save a buddy, right? You, you'd run out into, you know, fire and bullets and everything. Everybody's like, well, absolutely I would. I said, but would you have enough courage to ask them point blank if they're willing to take their own life or, or, in, or, or thinking of taking their own life? And everybody sort of rocked back in their chairs. And it, but it's really the same thing. It's, it's, we're, we're willing to be physically courageous, but this is a different level of courageousness to being emotionally courageous to be able to step out and say, are you thinking of taking your own life? Yes, and I think one of the good um, things about the assist model back in the day and other models like it is they actually have you practice it. Do you remember doing that where you have to like yes. practice yeah. the skill? Mm -hmm. it, it feels silly, I think, in the classroom environment to do it or it feels a little bit clumsy and uncomfortable. But the practice really does matter. And turning to the, your neighbor and and actually getting the words out of your mouth and, and being comfortable with it, I think, does give you the necessary skills to actually do it if you had to do it in real life. Right. Absolutely. You know, I was, uh, I jumped out of airplanes 35 too many times in my military career. And, oh um, and, and they didn't, the first day I went to airborne school, they didn't say, here's a parachute jump out of the airplane. We practiced and practiced. They jumped from walls and threw us on the ground and stuff like that. And, and that's what we did in the military was we went from no skills and, and repetitive training up to, to large skills. Um, and, and that's how I try to approach it with the, the community members is to say, just like anything else, you have to build up the reps to be able to be comfortable with this. Um, and, and so, and eventually if we get there, um, then maybe it'll make a difference. Yes, I do. I, I, I'm going to probably try to use that example as I talk about it now, like just like the military trains and does the reps, because it is something that you have to revisit. You can't just, for one, you can't just not take the training and then think you're going to be comfortable talking about this. And then, once you take the training, we, we probably have to refresh it over time. Um, I'm um, always amazed when people will share a story whereby they thought that they used it and they were successful getting someone into help. And they later report that they are so comfortable doing it now. Like it just took that, took that one first time to get them, you know, over the hump where they're like, okay, I can do this all the time now. And I think they're afraid if they ask it, that they're going to turn the person off or that they'll offend them or, that, um, you know, it's too risky for them, but it's a risk we, we should be willing to take, right? If it means saving a life, so. Right. Um, that uh, emotional courage to go along with the physical courage. I, I we <laughs> I did not even touch the tip of the pyramid uh, of, of what we could possibly talk about. Um, in, in the last few minutes, I, I'd like to give you an opportunity to maybe um, give some final thoughts. Yes, absolutely. Thanks so much. I um, I appreciate the opportunity to dialogue with you, and I think that when we get conversations like this out out into the mainstream, this is this is part of the solution for for trying to you know change change the national dialogue on suicide prevention. And here at the VA, we're we're really pushing bundled strategies, and so we're trying to build on the existing good work of the Veteran Crisis Line, where they are every day working hard and making actual saves of people that are at very high risk and building on, on the existing work where we're pr providing evidence-based practices in our hospital system to now looking outside the four walls of the hospital and um, encouraging our staff to know the data and know who's at risk of, of suicide 
within our veteran population and design interventions that are outside the hospital system to capture those veterans at an earlier time in the, the risk trajectory, if you will, and intervene earlier and with a whole host of, of potential strategies. And so I appreciate the opportunity to push that out and share that information with your audience. And hopefully we can continue to, to have conversations like this with you as our programming advances over time. Thank you so much. Yes. I mean, I, um, even though I am personally fascinated with the, um, the potential of the reach vet, um, uh, program, um, as you said, the predictive analytics, I think there's a lot there and, and we, we can and probably should have an entire show just on that. Um, and, and, and again, it, it didn't get to the, the groups and the individuals. And, um, so definitely would like to, to have you or, or someone from your team back on to continue this conversation. Um, if, if somebody wanted to connect and, and maybe find out what the Office of Suicide Prevention is doing, how can they find you? Website, social media, things like that. So I would send your audience members to be there for veterans.com and that will, that will push them right into our, our website, which offers a host of information on um, our VCL and all of the services that are available for veterans, as well as our copy of our National Suicide Prevention Strategy, which provides actionable items that people could just pick up and, and execute at their level as well. If, if they're wondering, what can I do to prevent suicide? Is there anything I can do at my level? Um, definitely go to go to the Be There for Veterans website and, and you'll see a host of ideas and actions that you could take. And we'll definitely make sure that all of those links are in the show notes. Thank you so much, Dr. Franklin, for coming on the show today. Yes, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. I appreciated Dr. Franklin coming on the show. One of the things she highlighted was how the VA Office of Suicide Prevention is taking a public health approach to addressing suicide in the veteran population. I've recently written a series of articles about the public health approach can be applied to the service member, veteran, and military family population, which I'll link to in the show notes. Essentially, it means that we have to increase the factors that protect a veteran from getting into a suicidal crisis and reduce the risk factors that put them there in the first place. Dr. Franklin talked about the National Strategy to Prevent Veteran Suicide, and the Center for Disease Control also talks about increasing protective factors while reducing risk factors. When we're talking about the veteran population, that means we need to increase connectedness, economic stability, and education and awareness around veteran suicide. Those are the protective factors. When it comes to reducing risk factors, communities need to increase access to effective treatment, help veterans and their loved ones restrict access to lethal means during a crisis, and provide postvention support. As my colleague Tony Williams often says, suicide is a national problem with a local solution. Dr. Franklin mentioned the show, everything they're doing at the national level is great, but it's the efforts that the VA is doing at the local level and partnering with their communities to do so that's going to make a difference. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST128. If you want to show your support for the work that we're doing, make sure to subscribe in the podcast player of your choice. We're always looking for guests, either veterans or those who support them. You can drop me a line at info at veteranmentalhealth.com to recommend guests, or you can go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash guest to fill out a suggestion or request. I'm happy to announce that I've released a paperback version of the first Headspace and Timing book. It's been available on Kindle for a couple of years, but now you can get it along with Combat Vet Don't Mean Crazy. 
check it out, go to federalmentalhealth.com forward slash HSTbook. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. While I am a practicing therapist, I'm not your therapist. If something you've heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us for the next episode. Until then, remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone, weeds overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P. I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability Looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. 
By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.